I grew up in a very traditional kind of blue-collar Southern Baptist church over in Owensboro. It was full of people, sort of like my grandmother, people who had uh, a true, simple, sturdy faith in God and a real practical love for people. Sometime after I left uh, for college, maybe even after I was married, there was a series of meetings held at the church, and over every night there would be some preaching and some uh, some teaching, and, and, and every night had this relentlessly exact same message at a time, and it was this. They asked this question, are you sure that you're saved? Can you name the day and the date and the time that you were saved? Are you sure? Do you have these particular feelings for Jesus? Are you sure that you were Say, do you have this sort of Christian lifestyle? Do you make these sort of choices? Do you serve in this particular way? Are you absolutely sure that you are saved? Are you obeying Jesus in these particulars? Are you sure that you are saved? If you were in a communist country, would there be enough evidence to convict you that you are a Christian? Are you sure that you are saved? And that went on night after night after night for a period of a week or so, and it created turmoil in that church as people wrestled with the assurance of their salvation. People had walked with Jesus for 50 and 60 years, people who had been my Sunday school teachers growing up, and people who had served the Lord in remarkable ways, wrestled with and scrambled to be sure that they had a relationship with the Lord. When I was in student ministry, it was guaranteed that every year at camp there was going to come uh, one particular night of really high emotion. Usually it was Thursday night right before we went home. Everybody's tired from the week and you go through the whole thing. And it usually involved uh, a, a story about going to a party you shouldn't have gone to and were not witnessing to some friend who eventually died in a car wreck. And it got everybody all upset. And, and, and what, what happened was dozens of teenagers began to struggle with whether or not they were a Christian. Across my years as a pastor, I've I've walked with people whose, whose dreams had died. Something that seemed so sure it just kind of fell apart. Uh, they failed or their heart for God went dull or they experienced doubts. And they saw somebody else who had a really uh, incredible faith walk that was compelling and they'd never experienced that. And they would come to me and their eyes were desperate and they would say, how can I be really, really sure that I am God's? Now, church of salvation is a critical question for all of us. It has eternal implications. Am I in a relationship with God or not? Am I forgiven of my sins or am I still guilty before God? Am I going to heaven or hell? And yes, it is entirely possible to be actively involved in going to church and have a nice family and good morals and be a good neighbor, have a good reputation in the community and all those things and still not have come to a relationship with Jesus, which is why the scripture says over again, make your calling and election sure. Be sure about that relationship with the Lord. And I would urge you to consider that. But this idea of assurance for our salvation also it has implications for how we live our lives right now. It taps to our identity. Who am I? It deals with our choices, our behavior, our even the enjoyment of our faith. How can I be sure that I'm in a transformative, life-shaping, eternity-defining relationship with God? And there's no need for us to manipulate the room this morning, emotion. We get it immediately how important and crucial and big that 
question are and what the stakes are. But the question then comes, well, how do we measure that reality of a relationship with the Lord? Well, the Apostle John wrote his first little letter, 1 John, to answer exactly that question. If you have your copy of God's Word, I want you to go ahead and turn there to 1 John. Again, we said go to Revelation, work your way back left, and you'll come to the little book of 1 John. We've been walking through that uh, this year in this year of hope, verse by verse through 1 John. He's now an old pastor. He's living in Ephesus, and he, he sees some challenges to young children of faith that, that he has, has brought to the Lord. And there, there are false teachers who have come into church and created doubt about what their salvation actually was. Uh, there are some who are actively involved with the church uh, who have, have pulled away, and that stirred doubts about what a real relationship with God really is. And so he writes this letter, and in, in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, this is why I wrote the letter. Look what he says. He says, these are the things that I wrote to you. I wrote this to you for this reason. So 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And he says, that you may know. Now, it's, it's interesting because he'd written the gospel before. And the gospel, he wrote specifically to those who were outside of faith to convince them to believe and trust in Christ. But this one, he's specifically saying, I'm writing these things to you who believe. You have a relationship. I want to make sure that you know. I want to give you a sense of, of assurance. And so, uh, this is how we know becomes a, a constant theme. And there are at least... Uh, 14 or 15 times he references the things. This is a way to gauge and look at your own soul and your own faith and your own life to see if it's a genuine faith. And what we're going to look at this morning is one of the first one of those. It's in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Ms. Emily Edwards is going to read our scripture for us. And so, Emily, if you'll come up and if you all will stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 3. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Emily. Appreciate that. Thank you. You may be seated. What John defines here are a couple of basic marks of genuine faith. And think of them kind of like a steady rhythm, a steady beat underneath the life that we live as Christians. And the first one's in, in verse 1. I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. So the first beat that John gives us is this idea. He says, if you're a, a, a Christian who has a genuine faith with Christ, he says, don't sin. Just just don't sin. Now, in chapter 1, we've seen already, Pastor Jason has reminded us that he's already affirmed that we're, we're sinners, and, and if we say we don't sin, we're liars. So, so what does he mean here? Well, he's not talking about um, a moral perfection of any kind. He's, he's not talking about that, but about avoiding habitual patterns of sin, habitually choosing my way over God's way. And he kind of raised that issue here, but fleshed it out more specifically later on in 1 John. In 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, he says this, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, a practice of sinning. And in verse 6, he says this, 
No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. And then verse 8, he says this, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So he says it's not this, it's this ongoing sinful thing. And so basically what we have here is a call to holiness. Now when you hear the word holy, I wonder what comes to your mind immediately. The word holy is kind of a combination of, of two ideas, of being pure or unstained, and the other side being distinctive or set apart or different. To be set apart from the world, to be set apart for God. So to be holy means I'm unstained and I'm set apart in a different sort of way. So holiness is a life that reflects the moral perfections and the beauty of God. God himself earlier had said to his own people, he said, uh, you are to be holy for I am holy. It's, it's who God is. We sang it earlier. God is holy, holy, holy. And he affirms that he says, I'm not like you. I'm not as a bigger, better version of being a human. I'm something other than you. I, I don't think like you. I don't make decisions like you. I don't set priorities like you. My ways are different than yours. This, this holiness is an other sort of living. It means that as we live our lives, we act, think, and speak with ways that track with God's agenda, with God's purpose. And so he says, he says, don't sin, that you may not sin. In other words, don't sin, but be engaged, be engaged with supernatural goodness. Be supernaturally good as you begin to live that life out. That's the first beat that he gives us in this idea. The second one's in verse 3. It says, He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but verse 3 says, By this we know we've come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Keep His commandments. So the second beat that we have here that He gives us, don't sin, but on the other side of this, do obey. Do obey. Clearly, there is an expectation that Christians will order their lives by God's Word. This is not an option for us. Uh, because we, we have a sense of grace, it doesn't mean that we get to opt out of obeying Christ. Now, now this happens really when we think about obedience. It fulfills the promise that we make at our baptism. You've been around enough, you've seen the baptisms around here, you know we ask a couple of questions. We ask people, who have you trusted to take away your sin? And and, and, and give you forgiveness. And then we ask, will you commit to follow Jesus as your Lord? And at the moment you say yes, when you affirm Jesus Lord who rules, what that means is that I'm a servant who submits. If Jesus is the Lord over everything, if He's the King, then I'm a servant who submits. So we, we baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Buried in death as with Christ and raised to walk in what? Newness of life. A new life. So we're saying now you're, you're saturated with Jesus. Live a Jesus-shaped life from this time on. And the way a Jesus-shaped life shows up is when we follow Jesus' ways and Jesus' words. 
This is the way of a disciple. Right after Jesus gave the Great Commission about making disciples and baptizing them, look what he says in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Wow. Everything. That's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? Covers every aspect of what he has said. Everything I have commanded. That's huge. And so Jesus gives imperatives. Now let's just get a taste of this for a minute. What does he mean when he says everything? Well, he says at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So in other words, the Ten Commandments is still in force for those who follow Jesus and all the implications of the heart underneath that. He says, as a command, if you come to worship and remember there your brother has anything against you, leave worship, go be reconciled, then come back and worship. He says, not just don't commit adultery. He says, don't look after someone to lust after them in your heart. He says, don't lay up treasures on earth, lay up treasures in heaven. Don't be anxious about anything, but trust your Father and seek first the kingdom. He commands, whatever you wish others would do to you, you do also to them. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his field. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Whoever will be great among you must be your servant and be the slave of all. The first commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And the second liken to it, love your neighbor as yourself. I've washed your feet, you wash one another's feet. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Abide in me, for apart from me you can do nothing. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Go and make disciples of all nations. Wow. It's very, very comprehensive. There's a lot of things that Jesus, and that's the taste of the things that Jesus commanded. So when we say, do obey, what we're saying is not just to be courageously committed. Be courageously committed. So as we live our lives together, the idea, don't sin, do obey. So this must be how we prove that we have a genuine relationship with God. Don't sin, do obey. Uh, Be good and do good. Now, this is our default setting. Uh, This is the way most people would kind of be okay with. Yeah, that's a good Christian. That's what a Christian looks like, right? That's the way it is. But before we kind of settle in on that and say that's the way it is, let me push back a little bit. Because if the genuine Christian faith is about don't sin and do obey, we reduce it down to kind of that checklist. What What do we have? What we see, first of all, is we have a faith that is, that is kind of generic. It's generic. It can, it can apply to all kinds of organizations in our world that are built on this. Just be moral and keep the rules. It's kind of behavior modification with a higher power. It's a 12-step program with better music. You know, it's just, that's just kind of the way it is. Just, just be moral, follow the rules. And to be quite honest, if we just think about Christianity as don't sin, do obey, somebody explain to me how different it is from any other world religion. 
How different is this from, hey, make sure if you're a Muslim, if you're a woman, make sure you wear the burqa. If you're a man, don't you dare catch eyes with a woman who's not your wife, and you make sure you bow and pray to Mecca five times a day. Or don't drink caffeine on Saturday mornings. Make sure you go and knock on doors to convince people of your faith. It's like any other world religion or cult that is around us. If we reduce faith down to don't sin and do obey, not only is it generic, it's also fickle. It's fickle because this is so built on our emotions of how we feel we're doing with the list that we have made. So I feel pretty good that I'm doing okay with, with sin or I feel like I'm doing okay with obedience and I kind of feel good about my faith and where things are. But if I've kind of blown it that week, I'm not walking such obedience, then I feel bad and I beat up and I feel guilty. And as we all know, feelings, they're... They're, they're as changeable as, as March weather in Kentucky, right? It changes all the time. You can't build anything on that. So, so it's generic or fickle. If we go back to just don't sin, do obey, and all of that, it's, it's superficial. It's superficial. It deals just with the surface things, with outward behaviors. Rarely cuts down to the heart, down to the core of things. But Jesus said the primary basis of faith is at the heart. So you see, we can do all the right things, but not really have the fullness of the life He's called us to. And when we're superficial, we're just basing on outward actions. That also makes us tend toward building a faith on comparison. So we set a, we set a standard for what a real Christian or a good Christian is. And we're going to see how we're doing. And then we expect others to measure by that exact exact standard. And when they don't, we can tend to get judgmental and harsh and cynical and just plain mean. If we reduce faith down just to don't sin, do obey, it also can be just, just exhausting. Just exhausting. Because you're always scrambling to, to gauge how we're doing. You're always scrambling to keep clean and get the good marks on your record. You're scrambling all the time to clean up your act and to make it right and to keep on working, keep on performing for God. Do more, do better, do more, do better. It's always a way of performing for God and performing for others. And this is what faith is. And one guy called this, it's, it's performancism. We're working and we're worried and we're restless and there's very little joy. There's very little laughter in the Word, because we're so, having to work so hard, it wears us out. And ultimately, when we reduce it all down to don't sin, do obey, we end up with a faith that is basically despairing. It's despairing. Because we come to the point when we say, this call to holiness and a call to full obedience is just too hard it's simply impossible. My sin's always there. When I try to obey, I blow it or I can't stay consistent. I just can't do this. So faith that is real and strong and intimate and sturdy and, and life-transforming must be for spiritual giants like Billy Graham and Mother Teresa, but not really for me. I just can't do it. Even though the last one is the closest to the truth of anything we've said so far. There's no assurance here. If we build our faith on a list of don't sin, do obey, there's no assurance. Why is that? Because these two things, as important as they are, and they are crucially important and true, 
But on their own, these two things are in fact not Christianity at all. These two things on their own may be a spirituality that tips in God's direction, but they're not Christianity. As a matter of fact, left on their own, just living a life of don't sin, do obey, may in fact be the most dangerous thing of all for your soul. So how do, they, how do these things begin to move when we look and say, how does then living hope begin to transform our lives? Look in verse 2, because John ties this together. In verse 2 he says, He, Jesus Christ, he says, let's actually begin in the middle of verse, verse 1. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There's only one source for a genuine faith, and that one source is Jesus Himself. It is Jesus Christ Himself. He says it there in verse 1, Jesus Christ. The very name roots this in, in history, not in theory. Faith is built in a person, not an idea or an activity. Because we're not looking just to have genuine faith, but genuine Christian faith. And genuine Christian faith has to have Christ in it. <laughs> so Jesus Christ. Well, who is this Jesus Christ? He is fully God and fully Man, it's right there in his name. Jesus was the name the angel gave to Mary and Joseph. They said, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Christ is the name for Messiah, the anointed one of God, the one who from all eternity has been at the center point of God's plan for humanity was this Christ. So he's fully man and fully God. And not only that, it says and tells us there that he is the righteous he is righteous in character. He always perfectly met God's standard. Jesus Christ is holy. He is morally perfect in all His ways. The Bible says in, uh, in Hebrews 4, He was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. So if this was a record of His record of, of wrong before God, it's completely clean, the record that He has. There's no mark against him in any way. No marks on his record. He is completely and utterly unblemished. But this Jesus Christ, fully man, fully God, righteous in character, is also your propitiation to the judge. So proud of Emily. She did such a good job with that word. It's a tough word. It's not a word we use very much. It's an odd word, but it's an oddly wonderful word. What does it mean? Say that Jesus Christ is the propitiation to the judge. Well, here's the definition. Propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies the rightful wrath of a holy God. Okay? That's the definition. You can kind of grasp that. But you don't really understand the definition until you hear the story that the definition is set into. And the story begins with God. The God who is holy, holy, holy. The God who is blindingly holy, who is perfectly pure, who is loving and wise. The one who is the ultimate uh, king over everything. The one who is the creator of all. Who created you and me with the purpose that he has given us to live for his glory. To live in a way that displays who he is and to order our lives by him. 
the way He designed the world. But all of us sin against Him. We break His laws or we replace Him or we simply ignore Him and leave His authority. And so when He's the ultimate King, sin against Him is the ultimate wrong. And the ultimate wrong requires the ultimate punishment. So the wages of sin is death. It's death for our soul and death for our lives. So you see, the sin cannot be ignored because that wouldn't be just. When we see something wrong, we know that needs to be punished. We understand that. Well, God, who is perfectly just, gets that as well. So no sin can be completely ignored. It's got to be penalized. So, so offenders, that's you and me, when we sin, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Offenders against God's holiness face the king's judgment, and that is what the Bible calls God's wrath. Our God is a consuming fire. He has a right to feel wrath towards all that is unholy. Break my heart for what breaks yours. What breaks God's heart is unholiness. That was against His ways and His character. When we talk about God's wrath, let's be real careful we understand. We're not talking about an out-of-control rage, but a focused judgment against, against, about sin. And because sin, you see, rips right the fabric of what God intended life to be. Sin causes brokenness and heartache to people whom God loves. It separates people from, uh, from His love. It blocks His blessing. It's just not good in any way. God hates sin with a holy hatred. And so He comes against it to root it out, to take it out, to punish it because it's right to do so. But understand what the Bible says in Ephesians 2. It says we are dead in our trespasses and sins and all of us are objects of His wrath. We are objects of His wrath. The holy, eternal, forever, bigger than our imaginations God brings us, bigger than our imaginations wrath against our rebellion and sin. We are objects of His wrath. But God who is rich in mercy, Ephesians 2 says, made us alive together in Christ. We are objects of His wrath, but, but God. And here's what Jesus did. When He went to the cross, Jesus stood in our place and He took the full brunt of God's wrath toward us. He is your substitute, taking hell in advance. He paid the debt you never could and satisfied the just judgment of a holy God so you could be free. He covers all your sin, no matter how big or how small you think it is. He covers all sin for all people. It's said not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Nobody left out all sins, past, present, future, because He is perfect. He's done this. So Jesus, fully God, fully man, fully perfect, righteous and holy, willingly sacrificed Himself on our behalf to take the full brunt of God's wrath so that He can be your advocate. Your advocate with the Father. Now picture a courtroom. 
and you've walked in, the guilty one, and that's you and me, are standing there before the judge. And let's make no sense. Remember who John's writing to. He's writing to people who have already believed. So let's understand something. Sin is a big deal, even after you trusted Christ. Sin is a big deal. So the accusation comes, and you know it's true. It's completely embarrassing. And so what they do is they're going to pull out your righteousness record. And we're going to look at your righteousness record, and we're going to see the record that all of us have against us. Thoughts and actions and impulses and things that don't match the righteous character of God just over and over again in our lives. We know it is added to the midst of that. And we see all that. We want to run and we want to hide. You see, when you sin and you're His already, would you understand something? You're not left alone. We have an advocate, He says. We have an advocate with the Father. He doesn't turn His back on you. If you've trusted Christ and you sin, you're still your heavenly Father's child. God's bond of love is not broken by your unrighteous sin or your failure or your screw-ups. What does the advocate say? What does the, the one who is speaking in your defense, what does he have to say? He says, Father, remember this fact. On the cross, there was a great exchange that took place. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that's Jesus Christ, the righteous one, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, when Jesus died for us there, he was forsaken by his Father so you could be adopted as the Father's child. He cried out, My God, my God, why? So that you could cry out, Abba, Father. He took that. He took sin's penalty so your sin could be forgiven. He died the death you and I should have died so you could live. And what he does also is he takes your sinful record on himself. He became sin for you. He took your sin and gives you his perfect record. So when you sin and we open up the record, it has your name still on the outside, but you open it up, and this is what the Father sees. Because when you're in Christ, you're in His record, you're taken care of in the side of Him. You're seen as unblemished and, and perfect. When you're in Christ, your Heavenly Father sees you as unblemished and holy, and He looks at you, and He smiles. And he says, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. And forgiveness comes. I want you to see this. The gospel is a wonder. It's bigger than we thought. You can be sure of who you are. You can be sure of who you are. You can be sure you're forgiven. You can be sure you have his life. Because when you begin to see Jesus and the gospel like this, you begin to see it for the big, large moment that is you see and grasp that, then what you understand is that the assurance of your salvation is never about your don'ts and your do's. Your salvation is because in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, it's done. It's done. He's taken all your sin on Himself. So holiness and obedience may be the rhythm 
of faith. But Jesus Christ is the song. He's the one who helps us know this reality. So it's only when Jesus and His Gospel are the focus of our life and hope that we can have a genuine Christian faith that transforms us with living hope. Now, how does all this begin to fit together? We remember what Pastor Jason shows these three circles. That the Christian life is, in fact, begins with Jesus. That God has a design, but we sin and move into brokenness. In our brokenness, we try to make it all work on our own. And we'll never get out of that unless we take what He has provided for us in Christ on the cross as our substitute. We repent, turn from sin, and believe. We know His life, which enables us to recover and pursue God's design, and we have His life. This is the way the Christian life begins. This is where you start. When you step across the line of faith, this is what must happen. You repent and trust. You repent and believe in Jesus and the gospel that enables you to live who God has always designed and meant you to be. What we saw last week was that this is not just a one-time deal, but this becomes the pattern of our lives as we live over and over again. Yes, this is the way we enter into a relationship with God, but we continue on every time we sin. We remind ourselves again that we come back to the gospel again. We never move away from it. We never walk away from it because the exact same gospel that saves us is the gospel that's going to shape us like Jesus even this morning. So catch this. See, I know I'm a follower of Christ, but when you sin, I know I'm not supposed to, but when you do, what do you do? When you sin, you run to Jesus and the gospel. You sin, you run to Jesus and the gospel. You sense the conviction of the Spirit. And what do you do? You repent. You believe that Jesus Christ, when He died as your sacrifice, He died for that particular sin. He died in order to forgive that particular sin. And so when you sin, you run to Christ. You remind yourselves again that Jesus knew that sin was coming. He was not surprised by that. He saw that. And so you thank Him and you delight in Him. And you sing amazing grace all over again. You're reminded again how big the gospel really is. And you're grateful and you're delighted and you're happy in Jesus. And then out of that, out of that sense, then you move to obey. Out of the sense of I'm His, I belong to Him, I'm accepted because of the cross, not because of my behavior, not because I have my act together, I don't. I've sinned, I don't have my act together. But Jesus will change me and He'll fill me and enable you to live the life He has called you to live. Then you move to obey. So obedience, you see, comes the response to what Jesus has accomplished. Because of the cross, His life is in you. Even the desire to obey is itself an indication that His life is at work in you. Now, don't, don't miss this. Don't miss this. You obey to gain God's acceptance and approval. You don't obey to gain God's acceptance and approval. You obey because in Christ you already have it. You don't obey to gain God's acceptance and approval. You obey because in Christ you already have it. We live our lives by what D.A. Carson calls grace-driven effort. Is it an effort to obey all those commands? Is it hard? Yes. Is it a challenge? Yes. Stay obedient and faithful? Yes. But we do that because we have His life. 
We have His power. We have His hope. He's at work in us. And then you can pursue God's design. This is how you can be sure that you are His. When your days are shaped by this kind of rhythm, repent of sin, believe the Gospel, obey the King, pursue His purpose. Repent of sin, believe the Gospel, obey the King, pursue His purpose. And over and over again, when that begins to mark your life, begin to know the Father's joy, begin to know the Father's peace. So this morning, as we come to worship, in response to God's Word, perhaps you just want to come here and kneel and say, Oh Lord, I, I can't be the Holy One that You're calling me to be. This is, this is eating my lunch, but I'm running to Jesus and I'm trusting Him. Maybe you come this morning and say, Lord, I know You called me to obey I can't do that on my own. I've got to have you to help me live the life you've called me to live. This is the way our lives are transformed by the hope that is in Christ. Let's stand together and pray as we prepare to worship. Lord, we are grateful to you for the sweetness of all that you are to us. Lord, we are grateful to you that You have not just called us to be moral people. You've not just called us to try to do more and do better. You've not put us on some kind of a religious treadmill. It's not the life You've called us to. There's no joy in that. There's no hope in that. But You have come to rescue us. Not only to rescue us, but to give us Your life and Your hope. And for us to live out of that. So Lord, in these moments, would you help us to listen to your prompting? And Lord, then would you help us to run to you? No matter where we find ourselves morning, for the first time, living our lives, not sure what it looks like, help us to run to Jesus with all we have to trust you for your life. In Jesus' name, you come and pray as we worship together.